COVID-19. Weekly Digest. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty and over the next hour we'll look back at the week that was in the world of COVID-19. On Thursday morning, Professor Luke O'Neill spoke to Jonathan Healy on the Pat Kenny Show about the latest developments from the world of science in the battle against the virus. It is slightly worrying and the numbers are going up as you've just seen and we all watch them every night, don't we? And we think, oh, 50 yesterday and so on. So it's more than it was. It's obvious this would happen though because we're out and about more. And clearly you will see little spikes because people are meeting up more and more. And this virus jumps from one person to another. So we're going to see these numbers. The worry would be if it gets even higher, obviously. You don't need to be an epidemiologist to predict that. If it it goes to 70, 80, 90 a day, that's getting into the danger zone because other countries would have sort of had semi-lockdowns with those kinds of numbers over four or five days. It's about the trend as well by the way. It mm. may go down again tomorrow. We don't know, you see. So. We, we've seen um, track and trace actually work. I mean, we call it contact tracing here. It's track and trace in Britain. Um, but the reason why we're seeing all those cases in Kildare is because they're going in actively testing people. Um, there was an interesting report on Newsnight last night. I don't know whether you saw it or not, but they're saying that in that circumstance, maybe the PCR test is a little too accurate, that yeah. it's picking up fragments or might be picking up remnants or something that actually isn't infectious, but all of a sudden it's finding these. So is is the best weapon in our arsenal possibly not ideally suited to this type well, of scenario? This is the question, as we see more and more, yeah, I mean, uh, Trump himself keeps talking about it all, we're the best at getting cases, aren't we, you see, and he says, you know, we're the most successful country in the world. But yeah, the truth is you will pick up and sometimes there'll be a false negative and false positive rate in those tests as well. But of course, it's the key weapon to figure out who's been infected, who hasn't. Very importantly, of course, if you're infected or in close contact or you have symptoms, go home for two weeks or stay at home is the key piece of advice, remember. And, and this, the Scottish situation was in there was a big outbreak in a pub in Scotland, 32 cases. They, and, and how worried should we be a little bit about that? Because if we're looking at that type of scenario, um, we have obviously not every pub open here, but we've got certain food establishments that are serving drink and so on. It could happen here, couldn't it? It could. Well, that was a salutary case. There was a single case in a pub in Scotland, in Aberdeen. 32 people then became infected in that single pub. Can you believe it? 120 people were in the pub. They were all tested. All their contacts were tested as well. So it's a big job. You know, it's a lot of work in a sense to do it, I suppose. But were they on top of each other or were they in groups or families? Or how could it spread when you were socially distanced, Maria, in the pub? Well, this is the striking thing. They thought they were doing things right, I suppose. Now, again, there can be a looseness, as we know, in pubs and you can be near people for too long and so on. So, But that's one of the questions. I mean, how did it happen? I suppose because they were trying to observe all the guidelines and yet and yet 32 cases in a single pub so again the dreaded word caution you know whatever way you look at it these pubs and so on they're places where this thing is spreading and then three further places in Aberdeen other pubs reported single cases now remember in that situation you have to tell a lot of people to stay home and even the ones without symptoms have to stay home as well remember so it is a bit it's a very it's, it's disruptive at least for that region um, wh- when we're talking we've, we've heard smoking um, and the, you can understand the old confusion of the smokers Luke because they were told do you know what smoking uh, that's a factor oh you're in trouble and then guess what smoking's great for you lads have another few there and now all of a sudden smoking is a risk factor again yeah, yeah. so it just shows you that uh, uh, advice uh, can evolve well, well people have to realise science gets it wrong sometimes the initial studies suggested that smoking was protective you see and then they dug in a bit more and realised those initial studies were rushed they kind of published them too quickly but they weren't done properly basically at the moment uh, us scientists worry that wrong stuff comes out remember so that's the big fear 
So, um, and, and does that mean that, you know, if a smoker is more at risk now? Yes, yeah. The, the study shows twice the risk of a severe disease. You know, so in other words, if you're twice a smoker yeah, of a severe course, a big study just showed this. So 30% of, of smokers had severe disease, say 17% of non-smokers. So in other words, smoking, sadly, is now, the, the jury's in, in a way, smoking is a risk factor for, for severe disease. Yeah, the French will be devastating because that's what they were holding on to for dear life. I think it was a French study that caused chaos early yep. in the whole process, wasn't that's it? Right, yep. So what does smoking do that, that causes that problem? Well, again, it's obvious in a way because smoking damages the lungs you see and this virus goes into your lungs and, and if you smoke, you get tiny inflammation of your lungs, amazing as it may seem when you smoke and then that inflamed lung then becomes more susceptible to damage, I guess. So it's pretty simple in a way. That's why we didn't believe the first studies were questioned in a way because how can smoking protect? This is a lung disease and yet smokers would have more damaged lungs and yet there was the evidence that, uh, that smoking actually is a negative. So, and, and vaping, you know, there's evidence now vaping isn't the best thing either. And the other thing, they, were, they don't wear masks obviously smokers and vapors and therefore that might spread it so so suddenly the spotlight shifted a bit towards smoking and vaping as a negative thing for this virus one of the, the I follow you on Twitter by the way huge, huge fan of your work on Twitter when you do post uh, you, you talked about brain fog yesterday and we, I, 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 we've, I've heard you talk to Pat about the, the potential long term impacts of those who actually some who are very seriously ill and others who are hospitalised but wouldn't have considered that serious there are persistent symptoms amongst some people. Not all, but a a worrying size of, of the community who've had COVID. What might cause that? Well, again, we thought it was kind of the word binary. You know, you got infected, you got over it, you were fine or you're very severe. They, they were the two options to begin with. But now we realise as we study patients more and more, there are long term symptoms. At least one in three, Jonathan, have persistent symptoms post viral. And now we knew this other viruses do. This is called post viral fatigue syndrome, for instance. So it's kind of well known during infection. Your body's been beaten up by the virus, basically. Takes time to recover. And that was known with other viruses. This one seems especially troublesome. As many as one in three will have long term term, things like fatigue is a big one. And brain fog, I mean, this sounds like a strange phrase, but they use this as a word that it's this sort of sense of confusion and you can't concentrate. That can persist for one, two, three months when you get over the virus, you see. And of course, that's a worry because there's more persistent consequences, I guess. And, and is it because the nature of this virus is not just a respiratory illness, which is what everybody assumed it was at the start. It's an inflammatory illness. And that inflammation can go anywhere in your body pretty much uncontrolled unless we find some kind of treatment. So is it inevitable for now that people who get it may end up having more long-term consequences? Yeah, I mean, again, it's severity. The, the worst, that's obvious the way, the worst disease you have, the more likely you'll have these longer-term consequences. But even 15% of mild cases are reporting, you know, one, two, three months out. They still have some symptoms. Breathlessness is one. They can't exercise like they used to. And then this strange thing of brain fog fatigue, you see. Now, and you're right, the reason is it infects the heart, it infects the kidneys, it infects the liver. And the brain fog one, it can get into the brain. So again, the thing to emphasize, remember, is that this is a serious disease. Never forget that. That's the key message always, that... Uh, even more reason to beat it because these other consequences are evident and the heart is the other one there's definitely heart damage happening uh, one example is you measure a thing called troponin which comes out of a damage if you have a heart attack they'll measure troponin in your blood as a marker that the heart's injured that goes up post-COVID and that worries doctors because that's the evidence that the heart is being damaged and then the other thing is it locks onto a special thing called ACE2 are you familiar with this? Yeah, 
no, the no, receptor. No, oh, yeah. I'm very familiar That's with the receptor. You've, you've educated me as to the ACE2 receptor, yeah, exactly. to be fair the, to you. The normal job of ACE2 is to regulate blood pressure. That's its normal day job. If you damage ACE2, guess what? Blood pressure goes up a tiny bit. And again, there's pressure on the heart. Remember, the virus is hijacking a normal process there. And that normal process is impaired. And lo and behold, blood pressure is part of this. So cardiologists are now really flagging this as a concern that the heart damage is a feature. And that's, that's one reason for the fatigue, by the way, because the heart is slightly not fully efficient as it would have been before. You know? Lots of questions coming in, as they always do for you. The first one is, I'm a secondary school teacher. My mum is undergoing chemotherapy. My dad's also vulnerable. I'm their only child living in Ireland, so they're heavily dependent on me. I'm very nervous about teaching a room full of students if they're not wearing masks. How much risk will my parents be at when I start back at school? So this, well, that's a real concern for that person. They're not being a, a fuddy-duddy saying, I don't want this, I don't want that they've got real reasons to be concerned. So what kind of advice can you give that teacher? That's so important. I mean, I hate to say this, that teacher <coughs> might consider not going back to school. I mean, if they're looking after two vulnerable people, there's a risk of bringing that virus home, sadly. I mean, that's the first thing I would say. Secondly, the, the teachers be zealous, really observe everything very, very carefully. Make sure the school is observing everything because that will be a risk. I mean, we now know, I mean, the mortality rate uh, in those vulnerable people is relatively high you see so so again sadly that's a tough one isn't it you, I'd be recommending teachers look very carefully at these things because they, the, the worst thing in the world would be to bring that virus home but like I spoke to a teacher last night um, and th- made a very simple comment have you tried to order something in a shop wearing a mask it's quite hard you know you, you, you are muffled and people can't see your mouth so it's, it's more difficult to communicate masks in schools are going to make it quite tricky aren't they so teachers and pa- uh, patients or students yeah. they feel like patients. Uh, teachers and students are going to have to be a little more patient with each other, aren't they? I guess they have to learn how to do it in a way. Now, some countries are mandating masks in schools. For I like the German kind of compromise. You don't wear the mask in the classroom. You wear it on the corridors and in the can- you know, when you're in the assembly or whatever. That, that seems to be sensible to me because having kids in classrooms wearing masks is hardly ideal. Other countries say wear masks all the time in school, but I, it's tricky to see that working. You know, can, so it's a hard one. What, you, you've kind of changed. You've moderated your opinion on this. So you, you think that students, certainly the older ones, should be wearing them in yeah. classroom? The, the teenagers for definite, yeah, because as I say, outside the classroom, mainly I'd recommend there. Now, but again, some countries are mandating in the classroom. Now, how you teach a classroom full of kids with masks on is the next question. The teacher, you know, should try to wear a mask, certainly a, a visor. The big debate now is how good are visors? It's easier to wear visors than masks in a classroom, maybe. So again, that's something that could be looked at, but uh, but it's an important question. Uh, for a person returning from a non-green list country who is happy to get private swab test the day after returning, is that result conclusive or should they have further test days later? Well, number one, don't go to the non-green list country. But if they were to take a private swab test, would you say that is reliable? The guidelines remain two weeks. Sadly, you know, you got to stay home for two weeks. I mean, people that oh, have a test and now it's negative and I'm fine. There is some rationale to that, I suppose. The trouble is you, you can be infected. In fact, Nicola Sturgeon, after the outbreak in the pub in Scotland, said you might be test negative on a Monday a Tuesday now the virus is kicking in, but you've already you think you're <coughs> negative, you know. Now you have, three days later you get symptoms. You've been infecting people for those three days, mm. you see. So, so it's a tricky one. They recommend repeat testing. You know, in the t- day one, day three, day six, it's very laborious, isn't it? So, and getting people to commit to doing all of them, yeah. as we found out even in this country, is tricky. A question for Professor Luke from Caroline's. That's a very formal start to this, so we have to read it and give it due diligence. <laughs> I live in Wexford, where the COVID numbers are still okay. Well. Wait till you find out the numbers this evening. I had a break away from the house. I'm extremely careful over the lockdown, following yours and the HSE's advice. And I was thinking of going to Cork City to a hotel I usually stay in. Am I taking too much of a risk? I've asked the hotel, are they quarantining guests? They said, no, they're taking measures to guarantee guest safety. Should I wear a mask inside the hotel if I go? 
Well, I mean, I'll give you my top and save me work as I've been in a lot of the hotels in Cork in the last week or so. But you, Luke, what would you say to Caroline? Well, again, it's all about risk again, and then your appetite for risk and so on. If you're in, if you're for observing all the things, the distancing, the hygiene, you know, wearing masks in crowds, then that's going to be okay. You know, if you're in a hotel and they have good social distancing and good hygiene measures, then there's no need to wear a mask. I would say, you know, yeah. unless you feel you're a vulnerable person, of course, or you're, you're as, as we heard earlier, if you if you're with people who are vulnerable, then you're going to have to be more cautious. The hotel, you say it's a hotel you've stayed in before Caroline so therefore you will know how big it is you will know if there's enough space to socially distance if you can visualise yourself staying away from everybody you'll be fine and the hotels I've been in have been bending over backwards to make sure that they stay on the right side of the rules so it's probably grand as I said it's a risk register you have to assess where you are on it the one thing that's coming down the line in Britain at least these new rapid Covid tests what's different about these are they the the swab up the nose or are they something different this is a great development in a way Remember, every company's been trying to make better tests. It's all about testing, isn't it? And how good the tests are, quick they are. Can you imagine if there was a test that could be done in five minutes, which people are working towards? Wouldn't that be spectacular? Because they mm. do a rapid test. It you took know. them thirty years to have a HIV test that was even remotely accurate, by the way. And we're we're saying we'll have one within nine months. Well, this is the trouble. Yeah, but talk talk about people. It's like the vaccine business. All the best and brightest are trying to get better testing. I mean, even the Israelis now are saying they have a test where the mask picks up something in your breath, you know, and registers. That's a bit science fictiony, I suppose. That's that's, that's, that's heading, not the you know? two for five euro one that I bought the other day well, that I'm preserving. Slightly more sophisticated. Yeah, yeah, but you can imagine, you can see how it's a key priority because a great test, a rapid, positive, accurate test is going to be brilliant and, and, and now they're working towards that. And and there's, in the UK, they're going to bring up millions of... Now, the UK have been through this already. They kind of approved a test early. It wasn't that, that good. That was the antibody test. Yeah. That yeah, turned so out to be nonsense. That, that's the problem, yeah. But there's two tests, yeah, they're really good ones, actually, you know, and, and the companies that are making them are now... It's really well validated and the NHS is buying up millions and millions of them for all the hospitals and all the various places. You know. So if we were to, like, let's say they're successful in Britain, um, it's all proprietary, these things. So therefore, you have to buy them off the company. Um, does that mean the HSE, as part of a, you know, an island on the outskirts of Europe, would we be able to get access to that type of technology? And could it be the case it's in Northern Ireland, but not in the Republic of Ireland? Well, if this test is great, and it looks like it is going to be, it's a 90-minute test is the first thing, which is quite fast in this business. There's two separate ones, and it's almost like there's two competing companies. Is it still a swab up the nose? It's still a swab, okay. not as invasive, which is good. Remember, the test is pretty, pretty invasive. I haven't had it, thankfully, but yeah. so I know somebody who had, and That's they right. said it's like your brain being tickled. One is called DNA Nudge, another one called Lampor. They're, they're the name. Not to plug any particular companies, but that's the two tests that are now rolled out. And lo and behold, 5.8 million have been bought from DNA Nudge, 500,000 from Lampor. So they're really ramping it up and that'll be uh, 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 widely used in the UK. We have to get access to those sorts of tests, Jonathan, obviously, because if they're very efficient and very accurate and they're easy to do, why wouldn't we be doing them here? You know, it'd be great. Um, we are still making great progress in terms of vaccine. And, and we know that... Um, the head of the WHO said there mightn't be a silver bullet. They're still being cautious and hesitant, which is of absolutely no use to those of us who were willing science to come up with some form of solution here. On the on the positive side of the column for vaccines, where are we, Luke? And, and how close are we to actually having it available, even for emergency use in this country? Yeah, well, the first thing is, um, you'd be surprised in a way there haven't been any sort of trip-ups yet. In science, you, things, you were things often go wrong. You telling me slips from cup to lip and all well, that well, kind well, of thing, thing. In my business, in my lab, things often go wrong. You know, go back to the drawing board type chart. There hasn't been one yet, which is the first thing. Uh, there are seven out front for definite, right? Three are now, in fact, one of them, the uh, the famous Oxford vaccine, they've recruited 
at half the people already. This is a 30,000 patient trial. Can you believe it? So this is Bra- massive it's trials in Brazil. Brazil there's like yeah. 5,000 people in Brazil have been recruited already. So massive effort, massive speed. Everybody on this, obviously, and seven are out front now. The Russians and the Chinese claim already to have a vaccine. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. But they're using the same technology as the Westerners. You know, so it's very interesting. And, that and what strikes us a little bit unusual here, uh, and, and it causes people just to go, mm-hmm. it's new technology. So it, it is, yes, it is new. It is arguably effective, according to the scientists, and that's why the safety trials are so important. But how worried are people about the fact that it is new? We haven't put it into enough humans yet to realise it it goes gangbusters and is grand, or, you know, the last thing we want is another scenario whereby there may be side effects that we're dealing with the consequences of long after COVID no longer is a thing. Yeah, we've got to watch it very, very closely. Now, you can imagine the safety first with this one, because if there was any safety problem, people will stop vaccinating for other diseases, that the message would get out there, oh, vaccines are dangerous. So they're very, very zealous on this. Incredible safety measures are being, you know, uh, uh, deployed here in a way. So safety first, and then efficacy is, and does it work or not? They're the two things, you know. Now, I've never seen just safety tests going on. It's huge, this phase Mm. three. They're measuring every single thing in these people being given the vaccine to make sure it's safe. And let's be hopeful now. Now, the trouble is, it's new, as you say, the technology is a bit tweaked on previous tech. The reason for that, by the way, we never got a vaccine for the common cold, remember? This vaccine's in the, this virus in the same family as the common cold. Yeah. So, and other respiratory diseases. So, so now there ha- had to be a new technology in a way to make sure it might work. And now let's just see what happens next. That was Professor Luke O'Neill speaking to Jonathan Healy on Thursday. Coming up next, Henry McKean gets first-hand experience of travelling in the era of COVID. Welcome back to Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beattie. Earlier this week, Henry McKean went to Rome to experience foreign travel to a green list country. Here's how he got on. Lorenzo, we're here outside the Vatican. It is quiet. There aren't that many Italians wandering around and there isn't many tourists either, is there? Yes, actually there are very few uh, people here. Usually in the normal periods, even in the worst day of the year, there are 10 or 20 times more people than now. Are the Romans, are the local Italian people up the mountains? Are they on the beach? Where are they? Yes, uh, the beaches, uh, at the moment, the restaurants, the hotels near the beaches are, are going better than here. This is a touristic area, so is, I suppose, the area that is suffering more, the most at the moment. Even the other neighborhoods in Rome, lunch of the sea, lunch of the, of the beaches, they are recovered. They're recovering, now. the ones yes. near the beaches. And you're um, trying to get people to go to your restaurant. Are people eating in your restaurant? Uh, and in, in the Vatican, the region and uh, behind Vatican, in, uh, around Vatican, uh, we used to have uh, hundreds of people per day, each restaurant, each, um, each stall, and now unfortunately we have, we have a few. And how hard was it for you? Did you lose anyone? There is one, a friend, uh, she was very, very old, so she died because she was very weak. So she had underlying health issues? Uh, yes, exactly, she had other problems, yes, she was very, very old. And do you think your restaurant will survive? Trattoria da Marcello is the oldest restaurant of the region here. Yes, I think it will survive because now we have customers. The problem is we didn't have uh, so much as in the past. You're originally from County Offaly. We're here beside the Vatican. What do you think of the fact that the roads are closed, it's been pedestrianized for the crisis? What do you think? Oh, well, it's worked to our advantage actually because 
Um, there hasn't, we haven't had to deal with any queues. It's been quiet. Um, every, every, everywhere is still open to see, like all the, the main tourist so attractions. you can get into some of them? Yes, you can, yes, yes. So we've actually yeah. had a pretty action-packed weekend. Um, so we've done the Sistine Chapel, the, the Vatican. We've and been you can go in? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and did been... you see the Pope? I did, we yes. Did. We, we saw did. him yes. um, for the Angelus on, on Sunday. Sunday. Yeah, at 12 o'clock. So he came out at 12 at, um, in the square there. And how did you find that? Quite surreal. And did he did he say a prayer? Did he mention he, the he, coronavirus? Well, it was all it's in all Italian. Latin. It was all in Latin. Or yeah. Latin. Or probably yeah. both. Yeah. <laughs> or probably both. So we didn't understand it, but yeah, it yeah, was I'm good not, to not see. Yeah, I'm not quite him. sure if he mentioned the coronavirus. He did address the crowd. I, I saw him. Uh, and was there much of a crowd? And did you social there, distance? There was, and people were distancing. Could even could even have been a thousand, to be honest. But it was quite spread out it's pretty good and the fact that back home in Ireland Italy is on the green list you can come here you're allowed to come here uh, so it is safe to come here but you think there is a little bit of a sort of backlash towards people who come here almost like as if um, you could say a holiday uh, snobbery stroke holiday shaming yeah definitely yeah well we put it this way we haven't mentioned it to anyone that we're here you haven't told no. anyone no, no and we haven't put it on social media or anything like because we didn't want to get any negative I suppose re reaction to that but it's it feels safe there's plenty of social distancing if you wear your mask and um, there's you know the hand sanitizer everywhere you go um, so you know, I would recommend people come here if they want to go, if they want a little break away, considering, yeah. you know. Because they're calling it Covitrol, which sounds like a drug, but it's basically um, vitriol towards people uh, giving them a hard time. But can you understand the concern? People want to get the schools open. Tol I totally understand. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you, you can see here for yourself, it's, it's, it's totally safe. And it's very. I, it, I would I would argue the case to anybody. Like we're two meters apart. Well, yep. maybe a meter and a half. Yep. Uh, and the, the the next person is probably about 100 meters away. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for for selfish reasons, now's the best time to visit and go on holiday to Rome. Now is the best time because usually it's, there's it's, no crowds at all. Usually it's mobbed with crowds and you have to queue for hours to get in places. I mean, yeah. you can come here and buy and you don't have to buy those fast track tickets to get in we, places. We've, we've queued once all weekend. It was a 20 minute queue and yeah. everyone was everyone was. McDonald's was it? <laughs> <laughs> no <McDonald's>. pantheon. <laughs> it was for the pantheon. Yeah. Just the pantheon, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah. How do we get rid of a, a perhaps a, a backlash or a stigma for people that do travel to a green list which they're allowed to travel to? Spreading the awareness that it, it, for us it has been safe. I mean, we don't we haven't felt like we've been at risk here, um, because of the fact that there isn't many tourists. So that's all I can say. I think now is the best time. I understand that you know they want schools to open and and, and things like that, but um, I think now is the best time to travel. Per personally, I believe if if countries like Ireland and the UK start reopening their economies just a little bit at social distancing like say social distancing kind of environment and sure sure the citizens of Ireland and the UK or whatever you are that it can be done slowly but surely but there has to there has to be restrictions in place it's simple as that Italy didn't beat the coronavirus yet as you can see like not so many tourists around but with all we have in Italy is such beauty everywhere you look for example in Rome everywhere you look you see stunning thing I think that uh, we can beat coronavirus just with that. I think that everybody should be more, um, should apply more the rule because if you see in Italy a lot of people they don't wear still the mask. So, but I think that we are improving a lot and I think that we're gonna, we're gonna beat it. In the count, there were, I were counted also a lot of people, very, very old. It doesn't mean that they don't have to count in, in, the, in the total. But still, I, I think that uh, the media painted uh, the coronavirus <coughs> as something that was uh, very, very bigger than actually, than actually is, or at least bigger than I feel it.
personally as an Italian? Since I live in Milan, I live in Italy, I can agree with him because uh, it was serious. Because Milan was bad. Milan was really bad. It was really bad. Still very serious. It's, as you can see, nobody's around. I never seen uh, Rome like this. It's so quiet, isn't it? The streets of Rome. Yeah, I think uh, everybody's scared. So Only have Italians they gone to around. the mountains or where have they gone? Where are the people? Uh, seaside and mountains. Yeah, absolutely. Inside the country. So it's somewhere cooler and perhaps they feel safer. Yeah. yeah. Also in August, usually Italians, they get away from the city. So also so normally you give the city to the tourists at this time? No tourists <laughs> this year. Yeah, the, the thing that, that you have to, uh, to consider, in my opinion, is that uh, in Italy, we talk a lot about people that they are dead by coronavirus or people that also with coronavirus. I mean, I don't want to say that people that are that is all they are they should be respected uh, i completely agree with that but if you count someone that is already has at least at least three sickness plus the coronavirus is not like that is that for the coronavirus so but just finish them off yeah i mean it was just i don't want to say like that because it seems like very very uh not not rude but very cruel but that that's exactly what i think you know it's something that add on the top of a situation that was already really really, really critical yeah. and if you see the average age of people that died by coronavirus in italy they were like over eight years old so we are talking about like i don't want to say the problem doesn't exist exist it's really but your problem. age group can recover what about the economy will italy get through this you survive so heavily on tourism um you know italy had financial issues before will you be okay uh if you ask me this question meanwhile i'm sitting here looking around in august in rome with a city that i never seen before i'm from milano i never seen rome like this in all my life uh, i would say in this moment i would say no but we are Italian, we are like, uh, let, let's say we are genius, so we always like find a way to, to get through crisis. That, that's that's how, how we do things. Uh, Italy is, a, uh, for me, an astonishing country, it's amazing. So for sure, when they will remove the, uh, the barrier, people will come again, 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 because Italy is too beautiful. I mean, it's just one. You are here. <laughs> it is, it's a stunning country. Yeah. I think it's even more beautiful than France. Yeah, absolutely. I don't say that because I'm Italian, but if you walk in Rome, everywhere you look, like this building is like uh, something that if would be placed in another country, people would be there to take a picture. Here just a part of a city. You're from Germany. You're here on holiday. Do yeah. you feel safe? Do you feel absolutely happy? Absolutely safe. We just came from Greece. Now we're in, from Athens. Now we're in Rome. So we're absolutely safe here. So you're really getting around. You were in Greece, which is another greenless country for Irish people, and now you're here and no issues, no problems? No, no problems at all. No, it's very safe. You just, you've got your infrared thermometer and you've got anything you want. You've got doctors here, you've got meds. I'm, I'm, I'm myself a doctor as well, so I'm not afraid at all. I feel safe. I've seen the numbers. Uh, it's extremely low in Rome and I also come from a place in Spain where it's extremely low, which is Galicia. So I went from one place where there's no problems to another place where there are no problems. I know that Italy, of course, went through their very tough times uh, in March. They seem to have it under control. I've seen a lot of police. I've also seen some dangerous partying going on, partying going on in, in our neighborhood in Trastevere, uh, Friday, Saturday night, but the police are out. They seem to be controlling it. Um, but the numbers officially look extremely good and I feel fine, I feel safe. They take good care of controlling your temperature, making sure you have your mask, your hand gel. When we enter museums, for example. In the museums they took yes. it? Mm -hmm. exactly. And they checked? Yes. Mm -hmm. The thing is, I don't see a real threat in here. 
in, in, in Rome. That made me have more peace of mind. My name is Mark McManus. I'm one of the managers at Scholars Lounge in Rome. It's the best Irish pub globally. So 2017, yes sir. Since 2017, so yes, we're sir. here in the heart of Rome and we've another massive church beside yeah. us and the Jesuit, the oldest Jesuit church in the world. Every day I cycle by the Colosseum, I can see the tourism every day improving, it's getting better. Uh, I believe Italy has handled it very well. You know, all businesses, restaurants, bars were um, abiding by all the new rules set in place, social distancing, sanitizing, face masks. Um, yeah, no, I believe we're doing quite well and that's why Italy's on the green list. I believe they shut down as soon as it became a big epidemic and a problem. They shut down at the right time, they shut everything. And that's why we're kind of winning the battle slowly. It's still a battle. And what about yourself? How difficult has it been for you and friends? I mean, you couldn't fly home for a very long time. No, we could not. But for me personally, it's been amazing. I'm a baby boy, so I got to spend quality Congratulations. time. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Henry. So now I got to spend some quality time with my family. And I still have a job, I put on some kilos, so now I'm feeling like a blessed man, Henry, a blessed man. That report from Henry McKean. Still to come, we'll hear about the long-term impact of COVID on our healthcare system. Welcome back to Weekly Digest on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty. On Thursday morning, reporter Elaine Smith took to the streets of Cork to ask people what they thought of proposals that students wear masks at third-level lectures. There's for and against. Within the classroom, if social distancing can be kept, then probably not. But definitely outside the classroom where students are mixing in the hallways, then for everybody's health and safety, they should be worn. Teachers, I think, probably not the masks, as sound would be muffled, but maybe the visors. I think they should be mandatory when students go into the school and come out again, but I don't think that they should be mandatory when they're actually in the classroom themselves. I just think if students did have masks on in the classroom, it would be just too much of a distraction for them. I think that there's lots of issues for some children that are sensory. My own child is sensory and we had to come up with a way for her, which was to get specially made masks. Yeah, well, I think we have our guidelines, uh, you know, two metres distancing and sneezing etiquette and all that. But I think if you compromise the two metres uh, distancing, you, you have to use masks, yes. So probably in the classroom, uh, but once the class is over and people are in the yard, if they can maintain and meet the COVID guidelines, I'd say no need. And the fine people of Cork speaking to our reporter Elaine Smith. Kieran Christie is the General Secretary of the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland, the ASTI. Kieran, what's the view of the STI on this? Do you expect come September masks will be mandatory for students? Good morning, Kieran. Morning. Um, our, our position is very simple. Uh, we will be guided by the medical advice that's available. Now, one of the initiatives we took last week, actually, is that we wrote to the Minister for Education and Skills and we asked her to go back to uh, NEFET, go back to the Health Protection Surveillance Centre and ask for a review of the matter. And we did that because uh, schools are, are currently being reopened uh, in, a, in a few weeks. And, of course, we, we, we welcome that because they need to be reopened. Mm. Uh, but they need to be reopened in a sustainable manner. And the current advice that the department have been working on was provided to them in June. Now, as you know, Kieran, uh, since June, an awful lot has happened. Uh, phase four of the reopening of the country was due to take place on the 20th of July. It, it won't have happened even by the time the school opens. Yeah. And secondly, uh, and this is the most important one, there's been significant changes in public policy in the whole area of mask wearing. 
Um, you'll recall in the months of May and early June, even even the HSE and, and other bodies were very reluctant to to uh, introduce masks. Now, public policy has changed dramatically. Uh, they're coming in compulsorily next week in, school, in shops and so on, and, and recently they came in compulsorily in buses. Uh, so what we've asked is the minister to go and ask the, the medical professionals to review the matter before the reopening of schools so that the matter is cleared up once and for all. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't expect you to do the job of Neffet. I know you're not going to this morning, but, but you're following this very closely, more closely than most of us. Uh, do you get the sense when you look at the changing guidelines around masks and masks being made mandatory indoors at any kind of gatherings and in shopping centres, and then you look at schools and you've got 16, 17, 18 year olds in confined spaces all day long, it, it does seem incongruous that they wouldn't be wearing masks, doesn't it? Well, uh, certainly our members are raising the question with us, and, mm. and I, I listened to an interest there to your to your Vox Pop, and, and one of your contributors was talking about two-metre social distancing. As you know, uh, when schools go back, uh, the social distancing in the classroom will be one metre between students and one to two between teacher and students. So that makes the matter all the more pressing uh, that it's clarified prior to the school's reopening. And uh, uh, we think it's very important that, that for... Uh, the ease of, uh, of mind of everybody concerned, parents, students, teachers, is that just prior to the reopening that this is looked at very carefully again so that so that uh, advice that was given in June is not the advice that's being relied okay. upon. Given the, the, the fact that public policy has moved on dramatically uh, on the question since. Have you had a response from the department? Are they looking at that advice? Well, no, I've had an acknowledgement. I wrote last week and I've had okay. an acknowledgement, but, but we would expect a more substantive response uh, uh, shortly. Yeah, I expect uh, Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, was on the show yesterday. He mentioned the European Centre for Disease Control, the ECDC, are going to be looking at the issue of face masks and, uh, and school students later this week. So I expect uh, the department will be following that uh, closely as well as you. If they are made mandatory, if it's a case that all students and all staff are, are, are wearing masks come this time next month, have you a view on who should be supplying them? Well, the Department of Education and Fairness to them have, have uh, 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 some weeks ago set up a procurement uh, uh, policy uh, whereby they got quotes from a range of companies around the country mm. uh, who, who will uh, supply them at no cost to schools because, as you know, there's a lot of fundraising goes on in schools. Uh, it'll be it will be paid for by central government, so we wouldn't foresee that that would be a problem, okay. or at least we've been assured it's not. Uh, you, you spoke to us here, and just on on the issue of reopening schools the week before last, when the uh, guidelines were published, and look, while you had questions and concerns in some areas, I think it's fair to say you, you were largely hopeful that they they would open on time. Are you still hopeful they will open on time? Well, certainly we're aware that that uh, school management around the country are, are busily working to prepare buildings and prepare facilities, and, and uh, certainly that work is in train. So, uh, yes, I, I would be hopeful that, that uh, the arrangements can be put in place uh, to have a successful reopening. But we would make the point that it, it must be a sustainable yeah. reopening, and that's why we're raising this issue around the health advice that is fresh, refreshed, prior to uh, schools reopening so everybody knows exactly where they stand. And that was from Thursday's News Talk Breakfast. Also on Thursday, Jonathan Healy spoke to Cormac McQuinn, political correspondent with the Irish Independent, and Anthony Staines, Professor of Health Systems at DCU, about big post-COVID healthcare problems.
Every minister gets a briefing document at the beginning of their, their term. Now, we know that the Department of Health is a particularly difficult portfolio, and this will have made quite grim reading for, for the incoming health minister, Stephen Donnelly. Um, we, what, we, what we are seeing as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic is, is what's expected to be massive backlogs for basic treatments and diminished cancer services in our hospitals. It, it's quite, a, it's quite a, a frightening prospect, actually, in the, in the months and years ahead. Um, so it, it, the document lays out quite a lot about how COVID-19 has, has gone and how, how, uh, how it impacts the health service. Some of, the, some of the stuff is redacted, some of it isn't. Uh, but what we've learned from, from some of the stuff that was, that was redacted in the document is uh, particularly the impact on hospital waiting lists. Um, some of them, some of them can, could increase by as much as 130%. Uh, we're looking at increases for inpatient day, day case uh, patients of 83%. So that, there could be 121,000 people on those waiting lists by the end of the year. Uh, an increase of 83, of 40% for, for outpatient uh, waiting lists. So there could be 776,000 people on those waiting lists by the end of the year. And for gastrointestinal scopes, an increase of 130% uh, to, to 51,000 people on, the, on that waiting list by the end of the year. And, and it's important to, to stress as well, that's if HSE um, services are operating at 50%, which is obviously way down on what it was, what it was before, before COVID-19. And the officials also warned that at, at present, when this document was written in June, uh, the HSE services, non-COVID services, were offer, operating significantly below 50%. So there, there was a massive challenge uh, on Ireland's health service to, to ramp up the, the, the care mm. for non-COVID cases uh, by the end of the year. It's, it's particularly seen in the, in the realm of, of cancer care. Uh, there's a section of the document called uh, Challenges of a New Normal in Terms of ca- Cancer Care. And it talks about how the, the, the throughput of cancer services is at a much lower rate than would have been the norm uh, pre-COVID. So medical oncology is at about 70%, uh, radiation oncology 80%, cancer surgeries in the region of 50%. And the officials have quite a stark warning here. They say it will not be possible to get the numbers back to where they were while implementing physical distancing and associated precautionary measures without further space and resources. So the hospital groups have been asked to uh, apply for uh, resources to suggest uh, capital projects to add additional space to their facilities. Uh, some of them have already begun this process, but of course it will depend on the, on the, the, the money and the budget available to the health service for the, for the rest of the year and I suppose into next year as well. And there's a warning there also. They've already got an extra €2 billion Euro to deal with COVID-19 uh, and it, it's, it looks like they're going to need another €1 billion Euro to fight the virus by the end of the year. Uh, Cormac, praise was heaped upon the HSE and, and the staff within the HSE for how they dealt with this crisis wh- when it unfolded and, and that was rightly done but it, it created these other ancillary problems that are pushing other issues further into the future that are increasing delays. When you're listening to this though, if you're on that waiting list, if you're, if you're one of those people who have been given a letter from the HSE saying we're very sorry but because of COVID-19 etc etc the expectation is that you're going to have to wait and and we know that if you delay you're going to create further problems down the line pouring money into the system is is one way of fixing it but it just highlights the systemic failures within the HSE prior to covid yeah i, I suppose what, what what covid has done is exacerbate the the existing the pre-existing pressures that already existed in the Irish health service we, we've known for for years that it was 
that it was under in difficulty. I mean, we had with overcrowding in, in emergency departments every winter, it's, and it's not like waiting lists didn't uh, exist before the, the the pandemic. I mean, the, the the percentage increases there are based on the waiting lists that were in place at the end of 2019. So, so it's it's it, it does it's, it's I don't think the scale of the challenge facing our health service should be underestimated. Um, it, it was it was big before COVID nineteen. It's worse now. Okay, um, let's bring in Anthony Staines, who is a professor of health systems in DCU, regular on the program. Anthony, good morning to you. Good morning. In many ways, this isn't surprising. We would have known that COVID nineteen put tremendous pressure on the system. Um, physical distancing is now required in our acute hospitals. There will be a knock-on effect to waiting lists as a result of that. But the the, the, the document that Stephen Donnelly was presented with that was shown in the Irish Independent this morning, are you surprised at the scale of the challenge that's facing them? No, not, not even a little bit. Uh, everyone in the health service has known this for about five months. The, we, we went into the into the COVID with a health service that was failing. Last winter was the worst winter we've ever had for no particularly good reason. It wasn't a severe flu winter, but it was just all the deficiencies in the service catching up with each other, piling up together. And we had trolleys out the door in the emergency departments, which is just, it's just a sign. It's not an emergency department problem. It's a health system problem. We've been saying to the Department of Health for nearly 20 years that they need to start planning a whole system starting with primary care our our primary care system is extraordinarily underfunded so a lot of stuff that in other countries never comes within a mile of a hospital in, in ireland is shunted into hospital emergency departments into hospital waiting lists we we have a system where we have a two-tier system which is unique and uniquely dysfunctional. And they did something almost unbelievable. They hired the private hospitals for, I think, six months and then did almost nothing with them. The, the obvious thing to do with the private hospitals for six months was to start cracking through the routine waiting lists and let the public hospitals deal with the emergencies, with the crises, with the COVIDs. But, but in fact, use, nothing happened. We didn't happened. use the private hospitals for no, that, did we? We, no. we just had a ca- extra health, capacity. Uh, there were there were big we did, overflow we car parks, for the want of a better expression. Yeah, and they were empty. And I think there's a very serious, very serious question need to be asked as to why was that allowed to happen at a time when the you know everyone knew what the public service waiting lists were like. They were obscene. We we had a huge problem with access to healthcare, and people die quite regularly because of our very poor access to healthcare in Ireland. The, we, we had an opportunity to do a little bit about that with the private, taking over the private hospitals in the way we did. We spent the money. We spent a huge amount of money. The private hospitals are well capable of doing it. It's not a question of competence or skills or anything like that. But they weren't asked to do it. They weren't, it wasn't, the whole thing wasn't set up. It was a real kind of, knee-jerk response. And it was the right knee-jerk response. I mean, I, I argued at the beginning of COVID that we might need to take over the private hospitals. Uh, fortunately, we didn't because we weren't overwhelmed. But nobody knew that. I certainly didn't know that. So I, th- I think the decision was right. But the, then the decision to effectively leave them empty with a lot of really skilled colleagues, not quite twiddling their thumbs, but not far off it, um, that, that's an outrage. 
and we're now we're moving into a system now where all the sins we've committed over the last 40 years are catching up with us simultaneously. I said about two years ago, the Irish Health Service had fallen off a cliff, but not yet hit the ground. It hit the ground last winter. Now, in the middle of summer, we have queues on trolleys in emergency departments. Well, I, 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 I see it on a regular like basis. I find it fascinating that um, let's take a county like Limerick and Limerick Regional Hospital where there's a huge trolley crisis. Now they're still reporting 38, 40 people on trolleys again and we know, and I, I don't know whether they've done any, anything on the ground and I'm presuming they have to make sure that there's COVID patients or suspected COVID patients are kept here and non-COVID yeah, patients are kept there. They're doing the best they can but it's still not good enough to have 38 people on trolleys when we have potential pathogen like COVID-19 floating around in the system, is it? Yeah, no, we, we don't have a we don't have a properly joined up system. That's one of our biggest weaknesses. We're, we are still the only developed country in Europe that doesn't have unique patient identifiers. So we, it's really hard. It can be done, but it's really hard to link care between general practice, hospitals, emergency care. Very difficult. We don't have access for our GPs to diagnostics in hospitals. Every other country in Europe, your GP can, no, with no problem, nobody thinks twice about it, send you for an ultrasound, send you for a scope, send you for whatever. Here, you have to get on a queue to get on a queue to see an out, to go to outpatients, or you get sent to the emergency department. If, if well, a GP no, sees no, someone... No, hang on, hang on. If, if I, God forbid, needed a scope tomorrow morning, we're back, Anthony, to me having private health insurance and being able to afford it yeah. and probably getting one within weeks, if not next week, yeah. as opposed yeah. to somebody joining a list to join a list that may eventually see somebody who may send them for a scan that's on another list. So we have a yeah. two-tier system. We've made it 10 times worse. We have, a, we have one of the most expensive health services in Europe for one of the youngest populations in Europe. We, we are putting in the money, but we are not getting anything resembling value for that money. And it, we're not getting that because we have a system that is focused on acute care, that is focused on the public-private divide. My, my take on it is where we should be going is probably a single-payer system but with mixed providers, with public and private providers. That, that's a place we can get to from where we are. Mm. So but the HSE, every, be no uh, to be fair to the HSE, they had embarked on their plan for the next five years, which was very ambitious and was it was targeted. Uh, uh, and uh, I, 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 I chaired one of the sessions that they had with their own team. And the HSE was really looking to the future with confidence before COVID and, and we were talking about slauncher care and we were talking about how everything was going to be fixed and at least be better and now it's all thrown to the winds because of COVID. How long will it be before we can get back to that point of confidence where we could say at least we have a plan and, and that we can implement that plan and it will make a difference? We'll get back to that when we get COVID down to zero. I'm being very brutal about that. We, we will not get capacity up in our public hospitals until we bring COVID down to zero in the community. And although there is a proposal that that's what we should be doing, that is not currently government policy. The current policy is to keep COVID at the levels it's at, hopefully. Uh, let, it, let it continue. The, there is no plan to drive it down to zero. 
and we're, some of us are arguing very strongly that's a mistake but that's another story Well we heard but Thomas, the, Ryan, Thomas Ryan was here yesterday arguing that point One listener makes the point here Anthony Staines and you're listening to uh, Professor Anthony Staines on the Pat Kenny Show here on News Talk How can private hospitals apparently function at 80% capacity while the public system can only get up to 50? Is that an infrastructural challenge? It is infrastructural. Private hospitals largely are designed with single rooms around, which makes infection control much more manageable. It's very, very hard to do infection control in in six bed or eight bed wards, which would be common in our public hospitals. And that that is a real challenge. Space in our public hospitals is a real challenge. A lot of our public hospital buildings are 50 years old, 60 years old, 80 years old. They're not designed for the kind of people who are in them. People in hospitals now, people come into hospitals every day in this country, a walkout who 30 years ago would have come into hospital and gone out the morgue. That that is the reality. The, The level of what they call acuity of the people in the hospitals. Is, is much higher than it used to be, which is good because it means the hospitals are doing a good job. But they're, they're not, we've, we've, not, we've not had a plan for this. HSE doesn't depreciate its equipment. Your employers own television studios and equipment in them. They depreciate that equipment over time to zero. HSE doesn't and the public sector generally doesn't. So there's no plan for replacement of hospitals. And we see with, I mean, the National Children's Hospital is a global embarrassment because of the colossal cost overruns. There is, there is a real concern that the public sector in Ireland is not capable of building these kinds of large-scale projects. Actually, I think, I think they are capable. But in any event, that is not going to fix things this winter. Well, for this winter if somebody was building a private hospital tomorrow yeah they wouldn't be facing 180 million euro overrun which is what this document warns Stephen Donnelly that the children's hospital is facing a text from Declan says a single payer means it'll get worse for everybody um, and, and that is the risk Anthony Staines when you try to interfere even in a broken system you have to make it worse before you make it better not necessarily if, if you focus something everybody will tell you in healthcare from you know, decades working in many different countries, you start strengthening health systems by strengthening primary care. And we do that. So we put resources. And we could put that we could put resources into primary care very quickly because it's largely people rather than complex buildings. So we get centres being opened around the country, very fancy-looking buildings, uh, not quite what James Riley had envisaged uh, when he announced them of having diagnostics and all that, but they are being built, aren't they? They are being built and they're often being seriously underused. There's a serious requirement for a programme to get the primary care space used and to put bodies in it. There's no, we know, there's no point having an elegant building with offices which are occupied for a couple of hours a day and seeing very few patients, which is often, not by any means always, but it is the case with some of our larger primary care centres. They're very underused. So we, we refocus that. We bring general, general practice is, is seen by HSE as a kind of an add-on, as, as a margin. They don't see it as what it is, which is the centre of the health service. In most other countries, GPs have ready access to diagnostics. They've read the act. They have a lot of ancillary staff. They have nurses working with them. They have psychologists working with them. They have physios working with them. That's not the norm here. Some people do, but most don't. So okay. we build, that's what primary care centres were, were originally intended for, 
is to build that kind of network around general practice. So let's do it. The centres are there. Let's use them. And we right, need a real crisis plan for the winter. That was Cormac McQuinn and Anthony Staines speaking to Jonathan Healy on Thursday's Pat Kenny Show. And that's all we've time for for this week. Until then, from me, Shane Beattie, take care and bye-bye for now.